Welcome everyone. Uh, this is Carlos from SeedCamp uh, here in Hong Kong on a post-typhoon day uh, in a very warm, warm office, but uh, very beautiful office. Uh, what's it called again? PMQ? PMQ. And very nicely designed appointed office uh, at Brink HQ uh, with founder of Brink, Bay McLaughlin. Um, Bay, as you'll hear in two seconds, has an American accent, and I think one of the things that's always interesting is hearing stories about how people ended up where they are. So maybe, Bay, you can kick things off with a little bit about your background, like where, where you went to school, what you studied, and then kind of what was the first thing you did afterwards, and then we'll, we'll kind of go to how you ended up in Hong Kong. Sure. So to give you the short story, I uh, grew up in the east coast of the states and went to the, a small school called the College of William and Mary. Little plug. First, first uh higher university or of education in the entire United States, so don't let Harvard tell you that they were yeah, first. Yeah, this is a campus. It's, it's nice. It's very pretty. And I, I think I studied business sort of like everyone else did. I started with marine biology somehow and then got into business and did a German and accounting and stayed for the master's program. The big thing in college was I started working with the Apple Campus Rep program, so that was sort of my first foray into doing sales and business development for a tech company. So I learned quite a bit about the passion I had for that, working on rolling out iTunes University, one-to-one -one programs in three or four different colleges, and then drove cross-country, no, no job, and a couch in sight in San Francisco, realizing that I really wanted to get into technology. So no formal education in it, just sort of hustled my way in the door and learned that I, I really did enjoy it. So I was in San Francisco for eight years. I worked for the first company that failed, second company we sold, started my own company and failed at that. Uh, good kind of circle, full circle story. I took the same IP and stuff I did in my own startup and I've put that into an investment we recently made. So that's kind of a fun eight years later sort of full circle story. You never know what idea might come back later. And then joined Apple during the downturn in 2008 a second time. Started with their uh, SMB division with six other guys. Became really a great experience for me. I started working with all the tech startups like Airbnb, Square, Yelp, Dropbox, Medium, you name it. They were all my customers. So got a, you know, an even bigger insight to that world. And then started their venture evangelism channel. It's actually how I met you guys mm -hmm. at SeaCamp. Started working with True Ventures, FRC, 500 Startups, YC, Kleiner, you name it. They're, how can we help startups at Apple and also help the people that help really drop the fire on these startups, the investors? So what's the right way that Apple could support? Um, so eight years in the Valley, definitely credit that to the vast majority of my education, no question. You know, hands down, learned more in that time there than I could have done anywhere else. But had that sort of uneasiness, didn't really know if I wanted to keep doing this. I just figured out, you know, this was this is a fantastic experience, but there seemed to be something else and I wasn't satiated yet. So my wife and I had this kind of crazy opportunity. We said, you know, what about Asia? Her company had that opportunity to move us over here, so we sold 95% of what we owned. I had never been to Asia ever in my life, not once, and we just dropped everything and sold everything and left in about two months and moved straight to Hong Kong. So yeah, you show up with 5% of your assets. Literally a couch, surfboards, my bike, and some backpacking gear. So yeah, you've got a lot of like fun gear and you know a backpacking gear, and uh, you arrive in a city that uh, probably has so much opportunity how did you end up working in, in hardware? I mean, how, how did you navigate the first few relationships to, to sort of end up where you are today? I, I truly decided, I thought it would take a year. I just said, you know what, let's take a year, let's learn Asia. There, it didn't seem logical to me that I could just take what I learned in San Francisco and just drop it into Asia. Asia seemed like such a complicated system and so completely different than the cultural backgrounds that I was brought up in that I would need to take at least a year, if not longer, to learn and understand before I could have any impact here. I decided to just start going out. 
So I went on Geeks on a Plane with Dave McClure. That was a fantastic experience. He took us around four countries to sort of educate us. That's where I got the idea and started thinking I might raise a fund for IoT. And I had this complete, you know, affection and, and passion and love for physical objects working at Apple for six years. It's you just get infatuated with these things and you're trained to love the physical design and objects in our life. So I knew I was going to learn manufacturing. I didn't know how or what or what that was going to mean, but that I wasn't going to leave Asia having not gained that experience. I thought that would be a huge loss and sort of waste of my time, to be honest. So in that kind of dialogue of looking at raising a fund for IoT, learning about manufacturing, and just being on the road, I was going to Beijing and Shanghai and Singapore and Thailand and Jakarta and just anywhere I could go to learn. I bumped into my now co-founder in Beijing, and it was sort of when I when I've been in Asia now about two and a half three months, I started realizing just how complicated it was from the scale scope and the background that I did need to partner. I didn't know how. I really didn't know even where to start. To be frank, but I started learning through my partners and his experience and his network just how deep you had to go in Asia to do this appropriately. And that's where the light bulbs went off. That and I've written this before in different blog posts that you need to partner if you're coming to Asia. It's very difficult just to walk in the front door. And you know, everyone's heard of Guanxi and all those other sort of uh, terms to say. Essentially, you're either in or you're out. You either are in the family, you have partnerships, and the other one's got your back, or you're sort of scratching at the surface. And it's been very clear to me that I could never have done what I did here without those partners. So. It's been a you know very serendipitous. However, the hustles I think were really kind of stirred up the opportunities in Asia, and I found that that hustle here is really a key. That if you don't want to do that grind, that hustle, that Asia is going to be probably a pretty hard place to break into. Mm-hmm. That they respect the hustle. That's what everyone else has done here. Uh, actually, most of my partners and a lot of our staff came to Asia when they were 22 out of college. You know, I went to the Bay Area, relaxed in my organic food and my outdoor lifestyle and the nice air and the fresh water and all this. And all my other partners actually went straight to mainland China at 22 years old, and they just broke down the door, figured it out. So. I think it's a partnership mentality and and hustle over here is probably the best two bits of advice I've learned quickly. Okay, and well, before we kind of go into what Brink does, um, what what other advice um, would you give for somebody who is considering dropping 95% of their life and moving over here in terms of time that they should allocate to, to sort of give it a good go? Also, in terms of finding your way in, like what groups uh, potentially they should join or anything like that that would help them in that process, especially if a founder realizes that they need to move over. And is, is Hong Kong really kind of the, the ideal place for that? A lot of great questions. I think the, the big thing for me is recognizing whatever you want to get out, whatever success or the goal that you have in mind is, there are certain places to go. You know, Beijing is a fantastic tech center for certain types of people that are doing certain types of things. I think it's a, a hard place to go if you're a foreigner. I chose Hong Kong and we actually set up our headquarters in Hong Kong specifically to make sure that entrepreneurs, investors, partners from around the world can feel comfortable coming to Asia. It's not that Asia is uncomfortable, it's actually quite comfortable. You know, Hong Kong feels like Manhattan dropped on top of Hawaii in the sense of geography and, and density. But it's just an easier place where I think people from the West drop in easily and not have any friction. High English speaking, uh, high sense of you know value for the, the lifestyle you have, the same sort of, you know, work-life balance is Manhattan. Uh, if you're from San Francisco, get ready. They, they work way harder, way longer, and party like I've never done in Hong Kong. It's more like Manhattan than San Francisco. But if you're trying to do hardware, I think being in Hong Kong with access to Shenzhen 45 minutes away, the new bullet train going in, which will be 15 minutes door to door, it's crazy, you can't get anywhere in 15 minutes, and be able to be in the center of all electronics manufacturing in Asia. Uh, it's a fantastic to live, work, play, and build your entire company if you're doing physical products. 
Um, in terms of the other aspects of technology in Asia, there's all sorts of different places to be for different reasons. Singapore has a great you know, community. Um, Shanghai has its own community. Taiwan, Thailand. There's a lot of great places to go, but I've told everyone, just get the, if you're an American, you can get a 10-year visa for 100 bucks. You know, that just happened with, under Obama. It's super simple. Just get the 10-year Chinese visa. You get 90 days for most people coming into Hong Kong. Just try it. The tickets aren't that expensive. You can get one for under 1,000 US. Come check it out, get an Airbnb, see if it's for you or not. I think, I think most people will know within three months if they feed off that energy. And I, I think if you're really going to put down roots and give it a long go, anywhere from one to two years, I, I feel like you generally get about four to five years of work done. The pace is so fast here that that would be plenty for you to truly understand. I knew within about six months that I was here for a decade probably. Mm. But um, I think within a year to a year and a half, most people will know whether it's for them or not. Mm. Okay, cool. So let's let's jump to Brink. Uh, maybe for those of you that have not heard of Brink, maybe you can uh, just give us a sort of a run through of kind of what it is and how it works, how founders can get involved, what you bring to the table, just kind of a general overview. Sure. So for me, having worked with uh, a variety of different incubators, accelerators, and uh, investors around the world, I, I looked at IoT and realized that it is unfortunately segmented. And there's different people trying to pull this together, and there's you know you hear the kind of rumors. But for me, I didn't understand the mentality of my co-founder Manav. We didn't. We looked at that saying, why would you just have a piece of the equation when every step in IoT or physical product manufacturing, what I call the life-threatening risks. So you, you leave your accelerator with your business plan. We also have an accelerator. We call it the launch program. And through level one and three months with us, you go through this program, learning how to build a viable business model, desirable product and brand with feasible technology that's ready for mass manufacturing so you can deliver on price, on spec, on time. Um, after that, we have a design school. That's level two. That's a 45-month process where you go through your industrial design. You go through all of your preparation for launch, which is your customer validations, your uh, video, your PR, the marketing, uh, some basic mechanical electrical to make sure you don't mess up later. But we give all of the same team that helps our teams from day one to month 18, essentially, depending on how long you stay with us. You have the same team no matter where you start with us. So you always have experts around you. So most of our teams start in the accelerator. We have some teams join us in the second step of the process, which is I have this great idea. I want to make it. I might have already crowdfunded. That's our fly program. So that's the next step in our program. We help you finish all of your R&D. We manage all of the facilitation and manufacturing, oversee all the quality assurance and logistics. You can deliver your products to all of your backers, your, your pre-sales. So that's the, the kind of third step in our process. And the last part where even if you could manufacture, if that didn't kill you, which it kills most people right now, then you really don't know how to get to mass scale and retail because a lot of people have this um, misunderstanding that going direct to consumer is going to be a actual better way to you know, sell your product and that you think that you can just make a big business going direct to consumer day one. Pretty difficult. So 90% of the goods in the world are still sold offline. So it's, it's a really complicated process that still hurts companies that even can manufacture. They don't recognize how strong and difficult it is to break into normal or sorry, distribution sales in the offline world. So we have a three-month program called SOAR, and that's where we help them with all their global distribution sales, customer servicing, retail kiosking, trade management, trade financing. And right now, a lot of people are actually trying to finance their inventory and their companies with equity, which you as an investor, you know, you know us as investors, we know that's a bad idea. It doesn't make sense to give away equity to do a flipping rolling inventory mentality, which is the real physical world. So we offer trade financing up to a million dollars for our teams, which most people are never going to carry a million dollars in debt simultaneously, especially at the early stage, and we're happy to go higher if required. But 
we, looked at, we look at it as a platform. We call ourselves the IoT platform on purpose. Our goal long term is to meet IoT founders and companies at any stage of their development, no matter where they are, and help them get to the real world and let customers tell us whether they want these things or not. Because right now, brilliant ideas and founders are failing for no good reason. The software world, you just ship. Mm. In hardware, there are, unfortunately, like I said, life-threatening challenges that seem unfair. Mm. So we hope that in five or 10 years from now, this isn't an issue for everyone, that if you have a great idea, you would actually have the ability to be in retail shelves. As investors, you know, we never think we're the smartest guy in the room. We try to be informed, but the end consumer tells us. So right now in IoT, we're not letting consumers tell us yet. Mm. It isn't in the real world. And crowdfunding is, is a data point and a marketing moment and some validation, but our goal is to support founders at any stage. Um, the easiest way to get in touch, just hit us on the website. Yeah, and for, like, you mentioned the flow of, let's say, a very early stage hardware company and how you support them through that entire flow. But let's, let's take a, a, a European hardware startup who might have already had like a prototype. Maybe they went through a um, manufacturing facility in Eastern Europe who might be helping them with, with stuff. Um, how would they engage with you? Like, let's say that they wanted to now scale this up. What, where would they fit in, and, and what kind of investment would you be able to offer them, both in terms of the working capital, but as well as in terms of, like, just to, to hire and to invest and all that other stuff? So right now, we have our seed financing fund, which is for the accelerator. Uh, we're currently raising the other fund that will come online afterwards. Currently, we have a syndicate network that we've created. So we have IoT investors that we've educated ourselves. They believe in our particular methodology. So the speed to close is much faster. Uh, we've had a very high success rate in that. The, the goal for us is to support whatever they need. Um, generally, people that are transitioning from one manufacturing facility or mentality to another, there's quite a bit of loss that happens, which is a big frustration. It slows you down along in the long haul. And so you kind of take this short-term hit to fix something that you might have been able to do differently if you had started in Asia. So we do our best to facilitate the transition. You can still work with us. It could just be in the SOAR program if you're just looking for trade financing, distribution sales, uh, logistics supply chain management. They might actually need to go redo some R&D at that point. They might want to look at different chipsets. I find in Europe a lot of teams are using chipsets because they have scripting languages built in and better documentation for English-speaking people, which generally means the chipsets are more expensive, uh, less uh, standard in Asia. You'll find a lot of chips that you can find sort of off the shelf, quote unquote, in the West that in the factories in China, they would never even dare touch them. So it's it's one of those things that it really depends where they are. I think there's always gonna be some more R&D translation to get back into manufacturing, but then certainly on the sales and distribution side, that's a no-brainer. No, that's, that's, that's great, and you made some very cool points there, and um, I wanted to bring up one of the points that you made when we were chatting earlier about the, the challenges of hardware and the commoditized mindset that sometimes people approach where you were talking about how you wanted, you should really try to help companies bring them back to the other things that matter, like the, the custev, the software, the, the stuff that's deeply defensible. But a lot of founders are probably still stuck on, on this, this bit, this commoditized mindset, and there's a reason for that. And it's because it's so complex that it's such a barrier to entry, that it's, it's such a, a hurdle. The other stuff seems like far more like easy and, and accessible. Maybe you can go into why is it that the, that the, the, the commoditized mindset is, is not as, as hard as it seems? Uh, I think there's two big points. The first is it's understandable that that, that is the focus because it's a software founder generally, the sort of last 15 to 20 years of education around being a software founder, which is unbelievably well documented. 
I mean, it's even popularized now. We have TV shows about this. So it's, it's common now, and I think that it's, it's put us in the sense of it should be that easy. You should be able just to rip down some code, customize it, redeploy it to the masses, and it should be no issue. Well, that's obviously not the case for hardware, so you have this new dialogue in the media, which is hardware is hard. I'd say it's 95% of the noise right now is hardware is hard. It's a good headline, people you know, latch onto it. There's a small you know, bit of the community, about 5% of us talking that hardware is not hard. And it's one of those things that if you look at the expertise you need to do physical product development, it's one of the things that we've had most documented for all of time. For literally centuries, the world has been making physical products, manufacturing, financing them, shipping them, and maintaining these things. I think the difference is that you have to look at your team and the actual competencies you need on your team differently. So for me, it's more of just looking at this and recognizing it as a piece of the equation and meaning that you, you have to solve that and it's probably not the best thing for a software entrepreneur or a business guy with an MBA that wants to start a company to say, oh, I'm also going to go learn mechanical engineering. I'm also going to go learn supply chain management. I'm also going to learn trade logistics, supply chain. Like, like this is... You could do those things. I've seen that happen to founders and they've had to spin down or even sell their companies early because they're focusing on things that other people have been doing so well for so long and fearing that they want to do it themselves. I don't know if there's a right and wrong there. We generally tend to tell our, our teams, let's find a way to spend the least amount of time and money to validate all these steps that we've created the right products so the basic product market fit dialogue and do the best we can to leverage outsourced partners through our PMO offices, our partners, our mentors, to ensure that you are testing along the way with the least amount of committed capital and time and effort before you go bring them in-house. So firmware engineers. You need a firmware engineer for about four weeks. So hiring someone on staff that knows firmware is fantastic. If you can find them, you can afford to carry that balance for 12 months a year. But you really just need them for four months, write some code that works, and then when you need to do a patch or an update, you bring them in for two days or four days. So I think it's, it's an interesting mentality whereas in software people are maybe just more multifaceted. You can have like a full stack developer or a complete front-end developer that's both a designer and it can code and you know, CSS, HTML, everything else. I think in hardware, I've been telling everyone, partner first, get mentors. Maybe think a little differently about the team you need. I generally tell everyone, if you can find someone from the electronic toy industry, they are the best hire ever. Because they've been dealing with these little gadgets that have been in Toys R Us and Sharper Image and all these things, and they could be in their 50s or 60s, guess what? They know more than you'll ever need to know. They've already been dealing with mechanical engineering. They've already been dealing with electronics. They've dealt with manufacturing, distribution, supply chain management, customer service. And that seems like an odd thing to say, but I'm promising you, they have more expertise in their pinky than most you know, technology startup software companies can have. And they, they've just done it for 20 years. It's very simple. So they bring amazing experience, even as an advisor. And so if you look at the team you need a little differently, you might find that it's not so complicated that you could have a full stack, more multifaceted software engineer, but then you actually probably need a similar guy. It could be from an old school economy type of job mm. and they can add tremendous value. So you mentioned you know, maybe old school kind of guy or maybe it's from toys or whatever. You mentioned all these things and earlier when we were talking, you were saying that there's an intrinsically different personality of the hardware person than from the software person. And, is that, and, and you, you kind of had a catchy phrase, which is software has made us soft, just like hardware is hard, the software's made us soft. So what, what is this personality discrepancy and how, and how, how, how do you need to approach hardware uh, as a mindset? I didn't really, it didn't really strike me until I was in Manhattan recently giving a talk that it wasn't that software makes you soft, but I think that software has been so easy that it sort of, by accident, 
made the entrepreneur a little softer. The idea that Instagram can be made in a basement with eight guys and be a billion dollar valuation, I mean, yeah, if you can do that, do that, obviously. It's a whole lot less work than doing an IoT or a hardware company. So if that's your thing, do that. I think for hardware, I think it's anywhere from three to four X the amount of work. I think some people probably think it's probably eight, nine, 10 X, but the amount of just simultaneous work streams and the types of talent and processes that you have to manage in IoT is just undeniably factors more complicated and more difficult. So in terms of, in terms of the way you know, why software is soft or hardware is hard. For me, software is only soft because you can focus in a very different way and can do it leaner, faster, uh, mass distribution, low maintenance. Hardware, you just need more, I call, we call it hustle over here, but you really need to have a hustle mentality and you have to be comfortable managing three to four X the workload. You have to get out of the building, as you know, Steve Blank always says, but not to go talk to customers. You need to go talk to suppliers. You gotta go see manufacturers. You gotta go talk to trade shows and traders and distributors and all these people that you don't ever, ever have to speak to, ever, in a software startup. You spin up your AWS, you just deploy immediately, you plug in anything you need to from GitHub, and you can start testing tomorrow, or even in an hour. Mm -hmm. And hardware is just not the same way. So the founders that we found that have been the most successful are the people that are open-minded, that are willing to work their tails off and really, really learn. Because coming into Asia with the mentality that you're gonna just do it the way you did it in the West, is a surefire way to get crushed. It, you just can't. You have to learn the way it's done here, but also be open-minded. I say old world because you think that these guys in their 50s and 60s have been trading tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of product. You probably don't want to tell them how to do their jobs. You probably want to take them out for a coffee or a beer and learn how does trade work? How does direct-to-consumer work in online versus offline? How does uh, how, do, how do you do a trade financing deal? How do you even do a contract with someone in China? These are things that you can come to Asia and learn very easily. But you definitely can't just sit you know, in your other city and read on the internet a blog post and expect that that's gonna be enough. Which in software, you can sit in your dorm room, read a couple of entries, start testing immediately and get some good feedback. It's just a, just a different paradigm. Yeah, fair enough. And for, for those people who are now permanently convinced that, that they should- That simple? Yeah, you know, let's say they just, they just heard your words of wisdom bay and they said, you know what, I've been in the wrong, you know, I've been considering a manufacturing local close to me, but I'm still scared. Um, and, and the reason I'm scared is because I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to to justify this as a, as a short-term decision. Um, maybe I should use local. Um, and usually this comes from myths, like myths about, you know, the, the connections you need to have, this partnership stuff that you won't be able to nail it. But what are the three myths that you want to debunk? Um, the three myth, myths that you say, actually, these are things that either through Brink or through um, just just a little bit of hustle, you'd say like it is actually quite surmountable. So I'll take some from an article I wrote recently uh, and some new ones. I think the first one is that you can deny or not pay attention to the the guanxi, the the Chinese way of doing business or the Asian way of approaching business. Which out here, it's it's these very deeply rooted cultures and families that control, you know, in Japan there's eight families, in Korea there's six families, in you know, Hong Kong there's probably eight or ten families. Most of these countries are generally owned by a handful of people. And I don't mean like the governments, but really all the business that happens. And in the Valley I was trained that, you know, young money, the kind of new world money, like you can make your own your own fortune and you can just be the Zuckerbergs, you can just do this yourself. 
In Asia, you can do that. I argue that it's easier to learn and join forces and find a way to have mutual beneficial relationships with them and learn from the way the old economy and these old families have done so incredibly well in building empires in Asia. So coming over here again through the front door and saying you're going to do it yourself, you can. I argue that that's going to be a lot more effort and energy and you're not going to have the type of impact you could have by truly trying to dig in and build relationships here. So in San Francisco, it was always, you know, do it yourself, don't partner, don't focus on it. And out here, I'd say you need to really be open-minded and spend some time there. So you might not think it makes sense, but I can promise you it'll be, uh, it'll pay back, you know, massive dividends. Mm -hmm. I think the, the next one is the, the fundraising. Uh, we'll probably get into more about that. But for IoT, I really think that the, the fundraising side is that you really, really need to, you know, raise tens of millions or at least a couple million dollars to even try uh, you know, a hardware company. I think you brought up the point around local manufacturing. There's no right answer to that. I think that you should do whatever you need to do to test the thesis that you have. And it might be that I can get a chip to even do what I want to, that someone will even wear this device, that someone will even whatever. Well, test however you possibly can the fastest for the least amount of money. However, if you really think you're onto something and you think that you need to be making more than a couple thousand pieces, you can do this. Like outside of Boston, you can probably get up to 50,000 pieces. Mexico, you can do mass scale. Uh, it just depends. I generally tell people, that's amazing that you can get the partnership with the manufacturing. However, even if you do manufacture there, you're still going to have this dearth of talent that you need to scale your company. So if, you're, if you think you're serious and you want to do this quickly, coming to Asia, specifically, you know, we think Hong Kong, uh, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, it allows you to be around the talent and the supply chain and the experience that can allow you to not only go uh, to scale quickly if you happen to succeed, but it's about the same price. I think it's actually cheaper in a lot of ways. People like to argue whether it's cheaper to be in China versus you know, manufacturing somewhere else. It's obviously cheaper at scale. There's transition costs to coming here. But I tell people, you know, if you do think you're serious, why not get over here now? So I know that's as much of a myth, but I think the price makes sense, the speed makes sense, the talent makes sense to be here. So, you know, don't kid yourself. If you're serious, just get going now. But if you really just think you're going to be making 1,000 pieces a year or 2,000 or 5,000 pieces a year, then I actually think it's okay to stay where you are. I think it just depends on, on what your goal is. Um, the how, many, how many companies have you seen have split dev teams? Like, they might have a, a group of people here, but then, you know, they, they, they were born out of, let's say, Eastern Europe, so they have their dev, their software dev team over there because A, they started there, but B, because it's cheaper for them to find peers there. How, actually, is that common? Actually, most of them right now, it's, it's surprisingly normal. Uh, I think, I, I think long-term what's going to happen is that most people, and you can talk to anyone that has a physical products company, so I'm really close to the in-case guys, and I always said, you know, if you're going to do this, like, why do you have to be in Asia? Because I was in San Francisco, and they had an office at SF in Southern California, and they always said, like, you will always be in Asia. Just get used to it. So if you're going to be doing physical anything, you will have someone, maybe not yourself as the CEO or the founder, but you will always have some part to do and some reason to be in Asia permanently. Um, so I find that it really depends where you need your resources to be. The only hard part is when you're small, not having the culture of a small team together can be difficult. We generally have our teams all come together for about six to eight months in person and then let them start splitting up if required. So we have teams that go back to Berlin and go back to the States if they need to have, let's say, software talent there. That's something we're developing in, in Asia right now. It's certainly, I don't think, uh, at least in Hong Kong, it's not nearly as strong as Italian you probably are used to finding in, in Europe and, and the States. It's getting there. Mm -hmm. But you, you sort of have to, I try to take that multinational mentality of looking at the biggest companies on earth. Where do they put their talent? All over the earth. Yeah. 
And, and you can't do that day one, but it certainly makes sense that you should probably be looking for the physical talent, the supply chain talent, the sales talent, the trade talent in the Asian areas. And then if you really think you have a reason, software development, whatever it is, go to Eastern Europe or somewhere else, of course. I mean, yeah. It's not that difficult to manage. Cool. Well, you brought up some very interesting points about the differences in software and hardware. And for some people who need to have their shortcutting of that process and learning how to do that, um, and maybe need some correction away from the lean startup type methodology books. Um, what book would you recommend for a founder that is needs this mindset shift for hardware that you, you probably think more more resembles the, the, the what you were seeing here? Well, um, I, I would argue I don't have a, a single book right now. I, I was I was thinking earlier that uh, one of the reasons that I've seen a lot of teams get inspired mm -hmm. is there's a book called uh, The Enchanted Objects by David Rose at MIT. That's not about the manufacturing aspects of this at all. It's about the sort of future that we could live in if the world was connected appropriately, mm -hmm. which we always talk about the promise of IoT and why the promise isn't really being fulfilled yet because people don't see it as a bigger picture. Mm. We're again focusing on the making aspect. So if you're getting, if you want to get inspired, you want to really have an idea of what's possible in the world and why IoT is so exciting. That I, th I think that book's a fantastic and approachable way to start. In terms of learning about manufacturing specifically, I think you're going to want to dig into blogs. I, I haven't really found a book right now that you want to read about, you know, basic management of supply chain. You can find textbooks on this stuff. It's old. Nothing's changed in terms of supply chain management, trade financing. This is as old as time. But in terms of specifically for IoT in the modern economy, I don't think there's a, a one-size-fits-all book yet. Mm. But I would say definitely read Enchanted Objects. It's inspiring. Another great book uh, by Ben Parr's Captivology that's recently come out, which is more about how do you capture people's attention. I think the hardware entrepreneur, if we go back to the part that we try to move them away from, is focusing on just making the device. Because I always say, like, if you get to snap your fingers and you literally just have it in your hand, would you spend any of the time? The answer is obviously no. No one cares what's inside of my iPhone. They just want it to be sexy, look like this, and be great. They, they don't want to know what goes into this. Similarly, if we can get our founders to focus on how to garner attention, create desirability in their products, and make people have that emotional connection, which I really think Ben's done a good job in Captivology, Captivology like making sure you understand why people do what they do, how to get their attention, and in physical products, I think you would hate to find out that you've gone so far as a manufacturer this, and then get it on a retail shelf and find out it truly doesn't captivate the audience that you wanted it to, yeah. and realize you're in deep trouble now because you don't have the financing to pivot. Yeah. So those two books I think are great to start. Um, manufacturing and everything else, I bet you could just Google anything and find pretty yeah. much anything. You, don't know. you have a blog. Uh, I do have a blog. You want to plug it? Sure, it's on Medium, just medium.com, uh, at Beta Bay, B-E-T-A-B-A-Y. Nice. And, uh, You've, uh, you've already shamelessly plugged your blog, but we always like to wrap things up with a, a, a chance to maybe promote other people that you think are doing really great stuff or other movements. And do you have any that you'd like to contribute? Sure. I, I think it's a little harder being in Asia based on uh, the, the global audience and making, but I'd say the easiest way that I really recommend everyone to get started is join your local maker community. There are some fantastic fab labs and fantastic maker spaces to start being around people that are in that space, similar to doing your normal software meetups. If you get to Hong Kong, you know, definitely join the hardware, uh, the hardware meetup here uh, hosted by John uh, or Martin, some of the local guys. Check in with Casey at Startups Hong Kong. There's our, there are great groups here that can support you when you drop in and certainly search you know, uh, for Brink and Google Maps and come knock on our front door. Happy to help out. Excellent. They have good coffee down in the lobby, so definitely, yeah. definitely worth a visit. All right, so thanks for that, Bay, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. Talk soon. Bye.